This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Jeff Kripal. Jeff is an author of many books and holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. We begin with his anomalous experience in Calcutta many years ago. First of all, I don't, I'm not particularly gifted in these realms, as I often say. I've t- I talk to a lot of gifted mutants, as it were, and I mean, they're wild. They're, man, they're like radioactive. I'm not, but um, I did have kind of one what I'd call mind-blowing experience, and it was back in Calcutta in November, uh, November of 1989. I, I'm, you, you know about it, you've read about it, but I can just repeat it for, for the listeners. I, I was in Calcutta working on my dissertation, or what would become my dissertation, called Kali's Child, which was on basically the tantric worldview of, of Sri Ramakrishna. And I was living in Calcutta, and um, Durga Puja had already happened, which is this major festival, and Kali Puja was happening, which is sort of the second major festival of uh, West Bengal. And it's this gorgeous, oh my God, it's just, you know, hundreds or thousands of these, what are called pondals or temporary temples are set up all over the city. And I had been visiting them and they these incredible statues with makeup and dress. And, and essentially the image is Kali standing astride her husband, Shiva. And Shiva is portrayed as asleep or in meditation or he's dead. I mean, it depends on your interpretation. And she's this kind of wild, long-tongued, erotic being standing on him, or she's portrayed as a kind of motherly, gentle figure. She has two basic forms. So, I, you know, I had been in, absorbed in this culture for years, actually, and was living there. And I'd also been quite sick, by the way, as, as Westerners often get sick in India. And I, I, I think I was mostly recovered, but during Kali Puja, I... I woke up one early morning, but my body didn't. My body was paralyzed, and I was sort of, you know, conscious conscious of this. And while I was conscious, this energy, this this incredible, erotic but terrifying energy, sort of came out of me or entered me and started to do things to my body in ways that I was not in control of, and. I thought I was being electrocuted. That was sort of my first thought. Um, That's how strong it was. And then I thought I was dying um, because it was was not subtle. And at some point, these energies just sort of imploded into my heart region as if I were having a heart attack, say. And as it happened, I, I floated out kind of that classic out of body or near death experience and floated up to this, what felt like a magnet sort of pulling me out of my body. And, you know, I, of course, don't really know what all happened, but I eventually essentially climbed back into my body and got my my muscles back and set up in bed. And I was just like, you know, holy fucking God, that that was that was intense. And it felt like this is this is a later language, Stuart. Remember, it's 1989, but it felt like looking back on it, like a massive download, but a download that I couldn't process. I had no context for whatever it was that downloaded into me. And I, I, 
you know, I proceeded for the next four years, really, 89 to 93, to write my dissertation entirely around that experience. If you read Kali's Child, you'll, you'll see that the whole book is organized around Kali standing on Shiva. And of course, I was Shiva in that experience. I was on my back. I was dead or in meditation or whatever you want to. And there was this erotic being just doing things to me that um, I was not in control of. And I held that. I held that in secret for years. In fact, I read, wrote a preface for Kali's Child about it, which I did not publish um, for professional reasons. Um, I just felt it was too risky. I didn't write about it until about 2000 when Roads of Excess, Palaces of Wisdom came out. And, and it kind of forms the core of that book, which is on the mystical experiences of scholars of mysticism. And I, you know, I've thought about it ever since. Um, it's never happened again, <laughs> I, unfortunately or fortunately. <laughs> um, but it's really what made me so sympathetic when I heard these near-death experiences, or I heard alien abduction experiences, or I heard out-of-body experiences. You know, it, was, it was, wasn't quite any of those things, but it was all of them as well. And it just, you know, I hear these stories and I'm like, yeah, I know that. I know what that's like. And, and so that gave me sympathy. It, it didn't give me any authority. I mean, I don't, I don't claim to know what's going on there, but I have some ideas, by the way, which we can get into, which are all about creativity, by the way. Um, but it opened me up to a kind of listening that I don't think I would have been capable of had that not happened. So fascinating. I have a constellation of questions. And to begin with, knowing your recent book, The Flip, which is about life-changing reversals of perspective, I wonder if it's fair to say you were the original flip the OF. Were you flipped? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that flipped me. <laughs> I, 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 wasn't the, I wasn't the first to flip, of course. That's happened to millions of people and, and probably millions since. But that event, you know, before that event, uh, I would say my, my psychoanalytic um, tendencies were very strong, to put it mildly. And I, I would have probably reduced Ramakrishna's ecstatic experiences to his sexuality which is how many people misread me, by the way. But after that event, I was like, oh my God. I mean, yeah, it's all sexual and it has nothing to do with sex. It's like, it's like sex is actually an expression of the spiritual. It's, not, it's actually reversed. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's Freud flipped, essentially. It's, it's not, you can explain the spiritual by the sexual, but you can actually explain the sexual by the spiritual. In that sense, it totally... It, it totally flipped me. Another fascinating aspect of this event is that you were so intimately, personally contacted, arguably initiated. You're taken over the event horizon of this sacred, profound aspect of that culture, those lineages. Then you end up getting banned, blackballed in India because of Kali's child. And I find this coupling bizarre. You're at once embraced by the sacred intelligence itself but then exiled by its home culture. What is the status of that controversy at this point? Well, it's, it's really impossible to describe what happened because it's so, it's so hateful and it's so, I mean, let me put it this way. Um, 
you know, the four years of the Trump era with all of the targeting and harassment and hatred and, you know, that all felt incredibly familiar to me. I mean, it just, that's exactly what it was like in the mid nineties when I was being targeted and harassed um, and grossly, grossly misrepresented. I mean, it was just, they were just lying about my work and about me and, or they hadn't read it. So it was this really head trippy experience where I, I just didn't feel, I knew I had been contacted as it were by, by this shock to tantric lineage, you know, kind of Shaktipat or, or, you know, the term that, that, that rang most true to me was Swapna Siddha, which is this term that appears in the text I was working with. And it essentially means someone who's initiated in a dream or, or perfected in a dream. And, and I, don't, I don't claim any perfection, but there was something perfect that flowed into me then. And it made it, it made it really, really difficult to be so hated and so targeted by so many people for so many years. It went on for six or seven years, Stuart. Um, I, you know, I couldn't open my email box without just a flood of hate coming in. And I would shake, I would physically shake as I opened my email. And I went into counseling actually twice to deal with the the emotional and the physical impact of, I mean, I was getting physically ill. I was, I was declining fairly quickly. And eventually I decided at about 2001, 2002 to leave Hindu studies entirely and to do something else. And that was not, it took me years to arrive at that. It was not something I wanted. It was something I felt I had to do for my health and to survive, frankly. Um, and so I, that's when I got involved in Esalen and eventually wrote the history of Esalen. It was really that work on the counterculture and on California and the human potential movement was very much a survival tactic for me in the beginning. And it was also, frankly, a product of, an, of another human being, Michael Murphy, who reached out to me in the summer of 98. He was just blown away by Kali's child on a, on a kind of spiritual level. And he, I always credit Mike with kind of pulling me out of the, you know, the, the front lines of the war as it were, and pulling me out of the ditch and setting me on another path. And I had to leave all that behind. And that was very, very, I mean, I had studied Indian languages and Indian civilization for 15 years at that point, And I couldn't, I couldn't use any of it. I couldn't do that ever again if I wanted to survive emotionally and, and spiritually. So yeah, that and that radicalized me as an intellectual as well, because you know, never again would anybody convince me that the study of religion is some kind of neutral or safe enterprise. You know, so you go tell someone else that. I don't believe that for one second. And um so yeah, it was really life-defining for me. Not just not just that night in Calcutta, but also the the six or seven years of uh, harassment and hatred from about January of '96 to I don't know 2002 2003 when I moved to Rice. When I consider this life experience you had, not only the original events, but years of harassment and poison. 
I wonder if you feel like Kali, the divine energy, to paraphrase someone, although I can't recall who said this, but the quote is, the divine is not a Boy Scout. I don't remember who said that. Maybe McKenna. But the point being, do you feel that the exalted and the debased, did it all come as one inextricably bound package? No, I think that's fair, Stuart, and I think that's correct. You know, one of the things you realize when you get on the ground now in India and look at something like Shakta Tantra, <laughs> you realize that the books on Tantra don't quite prepare you uh, for what you encounter. And what you encounter is like, oh, is like pure transgression and, and heterodoxy and, and real, a kind of counter culture in in India that's very serious and very can be very dark by the way and can be very well it's deadly to to the animals for sure that are sacrificed but it it's it's you realize how transgressive it is and so the, all of the later stuff that happened to me um, you know first of all I was in the US and I I'm a privileged you know, Western white intellectuals. So I don't, I'm not claiming any kind of, you know, horrible suffering here, but it did make sense to me as an extension of the transgression of the tradition. And it did, I've always felt, I still feel this way, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more. I've always felt that when a human being accesses the sacred, it isn't going to fit into whatever moralities or whatever cultural frames are active at the moment. It's, it's, simply, it's simply not moral and it's simply not social. And it can be contained and reduced into the moral or the social, but it's not that. It overflows and it exhausts that. And, it, and so I felt like I had very much experienced that. And so the voice in the book was excessive and and was also ecstatic and was also transgressive i was trying to articulate what it was i'd experienced and it could not be fit into the the tradition in in west bengal or or the us or anywhere else and that's what made the book so ecstatic for me as an author but it also made it frankly dangerous and so really awful later on but it, yeah it's all a piece uh, and it's all a piece given the opportunity would you have preferred to not have lived through that so so yeah what i always say is i'm so happy i wrote Kali's child when i could because i couldn't write it today i would be too afraid yeah. and i'm so happy i didn't know that i was and i wasn't it wasn't that i was naive my bengali mentors and and friends were telling me <laughs> they were telling me two things <laughs> they were telling me two things a you're right and b this is going to explode like a bomb and i was like okay and i so i understood that intellectually i did not understand that emotionally mm -hmm. still. those are two different things and that's and good. It's good I didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> in youth, we're invincible, still unvanquished by the powers which lay in wait in our future. Yep. It reminds me of a recent conversation I had with my friend Keller, 
who said religions are not formed to connect us to the divine. They're created to protect us from it, to insulate us from the annihilating force of the sacred. Right. So that's an old, that's an old idea in the study of religion, Stuart. It, it's real. That's, I don't know who said that to you, but that's like, that isn't lesson number one, but it's lesson number four or five when you study religion. <laughs> the way I always put that, I, I use a metaphor. I said, if you think about a temple, you know, in, in India or ancient Israel or something, a temple's like a nuclear reactor. It's, it's designed to keep you away from the energy so that you can use the energy to light up the culture or the civilization, but you don't want to get too close to it, you know? And, 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 and if you actually look at, say, the Torah, if you get too close to the ark, if you touch it, you're freaking dead. It kills you. Yeah. If you see God, you die. You know. Yep. So this notion that that the sacred or, or deity is somehow the Boy Scout, as you put it earlier, or is somehow this completely benevolent entity, just isn't true historically. I mean, sometimes you get that experience, but just as often you get this experience of deity as this awesome power or force that that is gorgeous but also deadly and um and that's just that's just basic i think to this that's one of the first things i try to shake students away from is this notion that being religious is about being nice uh it's just not true never has yeah. been true and and probably never will be true anticipating talking to you today reflecting on your work at slin and the book i'm curious about the intersection of the human potential movement and black budget programs. Human potential broadly involving exotic capacities like remote viewing or various psi abilities, as do programs run by Hal Putoff with Ingo Swan and Pat Price, etc. When I consider your work, I feel like there must be a whole shit ton of stuff you know about <laughs> but can't talk about. The behind-the-curtain aspect of Esalen, let's say. So what can be said of this pairing, the black world and the human potential movement? What do they have in common? Well, I can say a lot about that. Um, you know, the first thing I'll say is it kind of goes back to our, our conversation about the nuclear reactor. So, you know, the history of Esalen and a lot of the history of a lot of the things we're both interested in is an attempt to sort of ply between science and religion to kind of create a new spirituality that is somehow empirically true, but also spiritually viable. And that middle zone, that, that third thing historically has been what we now call magic, which, which is, which is involved with the material world, but is engaging these human capacities that are anomalous or extraordinary. And what, people may or may not realize about the history of magic is that a lot of it's pretty, pretty bad. I mean, <laughs> and by bad, I mean, people have done really nasty things with magic. You know, they have killed each other. They have sought to cast spells on people to have sex. They have used, if, if you're an animal, you know that humans and shamans have used magic to hunt, to kill them. Uh, you know that, a lot of magic has been about going to war and and being a great warrior in 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 violence. 
So they're just, there never has been a time in human history in which anomalous capacities have not been weaponized. Let me put it that way. That's what human beings do. And the shaman is not the Boy Scout. The shaman is a sorcerer who can use his or her abilities for ill or for good. Again, it's not a moral force. It's, it's a force that can be used for any number of things. So where I'm going with that is, so the, the way that remote viewing was picked up by the intelligence and military service does not surprise me at all, but it's nothing new. And I don't think those capacities are essentially violent or essentially military or intelligence oriented. I think they're just natural human capacities that certainly can be used in that direction. Um, and I myself, of course, I don't want anything to do with that. I, I have my own morality and my own humanity, but I just think it's naive to think that that isn't the case sometimes. But I also think it's naive and silly to say, because Ingo Swan did remote viewing for the intelligence service, therefore clairvoyance is, is bad, right? That's ridiculous. It, it, it can be ending up, people have clairvoyant experiences of dying loved ones, and people have clairvoyant experiences spying on the Soviet Union. I mean, it's all part of the same capacity. Um, and that's, so that's a conclusion that people don't always want to hear. Again, it's this, it's this amoral or transmoral position that I take, not because I'm not a moral person, again, I'm, I, I live in society. I have, I love people. I, I try to be a good person, but I don't think for a second that these abilities or powers are somehow linked in, you know, at the hip to, to some, to my morality. It's just not true. Let's stay with morality and the presence or absence of it in non-human entities. You co-wrote the supernatural with Whitley Strieber. The transgressive nature of abduction is plainly evident. What are we to make of moral, ethical dynamics in how contact has unfolded? Specifically, what's our best move as human beings who want our sovereignty respected by non-humans? Yeah. That's it. <clears throat> I, you know, so first of all, I, I do know a lot of abductees. And, and as I explained in Calcutta, I had an experience that was very much like that. But it was profound precisely to the extent I was not in control. And it was terrifying. And I thought I was dying. And you know what? I might have been dying. I told that story once to a class, and there was a cardiologist in the class, and he came up to me afterwards. He said, you know, what you were having was a blankety blank blank, and he gave me the technical medical term for it, basically a minor heart attack with no effects. And I was like, you know what? That sounds exactly right. But that that doesn't say anything about the spiritual component. It just gives me the, the physiological. So anyway, okay, why am I saying that? Because I, I really truly believe, first of all, that we're essentially containers. Stuart and Jeff are basically body brains that create a, a kind of uh, um, spacesuit called the ego, called Stuart Davis or Jeff Kripal. <laughs> And this allows us to float around in space called Earth and to exist in this society. But that 
when we have these encounters, there are holes being punctured in our spacesuit, or we're taking the helmet off and we're encountering other dimensions and other forms of, of life. And these aren't always nice. Um, and I see no reason why they should be. So for example, I happen to have a dog, we have a dog, a pet dog named Delilah. I mean, just look what we do to animals. Look, 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 I mean, at some point, I, 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 I really worry about the day I have to take Delilah into the veterinarian and, and put her down because she's suffering. I will be completely crushed and she will not understand why I'm doing that, you know? I eat animals every almost every day. Those cows and those pigs and those chickens, those creatures, those fish, they have no idea why this creature is killing them by the bazillions. You know, I'm sitting here right now and I am murdering bazillions of little living creatures inside my body just so I can sit upright and talk to you. Just so I can so life feeds on on killing, whether we whether we want to recognize that or not, whether you're a vegetarian or not, you are killing things just to stay alive. And so these, whatever these entities are, um, the first thing I would say is, well, they don't really kill us. <laughs> you know, they seldom, I mean, I don't know of any stories. I mean, if they killed someone, they, the person would come back to say that, right? So <laughs> maybe they do, but virtually all these stories I hear involve some kind of violence or transgression, but they never involve, you know, they don't go too far or they, they don't go to the next step. So there's a, there are moral lines being drawn there that I find fascinating. And I also always wonder whether this isn't some other aspect of ourselves doing this. I mean, I have dreams every night. Those characters in those dreams do weird shit that I'm not in control of, and yet they're me. So, you know, I'm splitting up constantly in my dream life and doing weird shit to myself that I, I would never do in my daily life. And so I'm always wondering these abduction experiences, you know, what, what are they? You know, do they have some kind of ontological reality that, that is separate from the human or whether there's some aspect of our own humanity essentially abducting itself terrorizing itself, by the way, uh, possessing itself. Um, and possession and, and entering another body, by the way, another classic move of magicians and shamans around the world. They've been doing that for a gazillion years. So again, these all look really familiar to me. And I, so to answer your question, what should we be doing? I think we should be questioning frankly, how sovereign we really are, you know, and whether we really want to hang on to this ego. And, and I mean, these things are only immoral vis-a-vis -vis an ego, right? I'm not so sure they're immoral without an ego. When we begin to expand the anthropomorphic locus of morality, does it retain relevance? In my case, with the mantis entity, when I try to divine what morality is for a non-human entity, its objectives, motivations, in making contact, I often get vertigo. It's a hilarious proposition to use 
a human point of view to obtain a non-human point of view. But one thing many experiencers wonder is what is the status of these non-human entities when we're not thinking about them, when we're not in their presence? Yeah. What's your best guess? Yeah. So my zero point is always that they're us. Um, but I don't know that, Stuart. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't push that on every experience. But when I say they're us, I don't mean they're the banal us. I mean, they're the vast us. They're the superhuman us. And so they're real to the, they're real because the superhuman vastness of us is real. But they're always being fed through some kind of cultural filter or through some kind of imaginal context that makes some sense to the person, but but never full sense. So let me back up a bit. So as someone who studies extreme religious experiences, it's my job to understand everyone's extreme experiences. Not to say, oh, yours over here is the real deal, and yours over here, that's fake, right? That's not, yours is genuine, yours is not, okay? But as far as I can tell, there's only really one way to take everyone's experiences seriously, and that is to see them as translated, right? Because if I take the Shakta Tantric translation as the truth, Kali on top of Shiva, and I take the alien abduction, a gray, American gray as not true, why? I mean, that, that just makes... That just makes no intuitive sense to me, and it, it's very dehumanizing, where taking them all as very real, but as translated experiences, just makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. But it means they're not, what you're seeing isn't what you're getting, right? It means they're not ontologically, they don't actually exist like that when you're not looking. They look like that because you are looking and it's you, you know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of co-creation that's going on there. Um, the, the best example I've ever heard of this is something Whitley said once in a room, we were all in a room together and we were pushing him on this point, on this exact question. And he said something like, for, you know, he's, he can be very blunt and very funny. And he said something like, for God's sake, I know that the the grays I saw in the 80s and 90s were based partly on the bad science fiction movies that I saw as a kid in the 50s. I'm not stupid. I know that. He says, but there was something there that was real. And so what we have to do now, this is still Whitley, we have to make better science fiction movies. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that is so brilliant because it, it's this weird reflexive loop, right? There's no standing outside the experience, but you can choose to make better and better stories, which you will then experience or your ancestors or descendants, I'm sorry, your descendants will experience. But there's no, there's no outside to that process until, of course, there is, and there, maybe there is some kind of transcendent outside. But that kind of visionary imaginal experience is part of a, a cultural history that Whitley was affirming, but also saying we can do something about. And, and that's, that's really my own position is 
we can do something about this. And that's my other answer to your earlier question. When people ask me what to do with this or that anomalous experience, my answer is always the same. Listen. Assume that these are happening to you for a reason and that something is trying to communicate with you. And you need to take it seriously, but not literally. And you need to tell your own story now. You need to derive meaning from that experience. That's what it's calling you to do. And it's not going to give you the meaning. It's not going to fall down off the mountain. The tablets that Moses brought down never happened, I assure you. I assure you that man saw something really funky with the burning bush and you eventually get the, you know, the text or the Torah, but that's not what he brought down off the mountain. He brought down some mind blowing experience, encounter experience. Um, and I think that's what these things are for. I think they're really, they want our attention and they want our, our, our interpretation and our, and in your sense, they want our art, Stuart not just for the hell of it, but they want, they want to take on cultural form and they want to be, they want to impact our, our, our generations. Yeah, that's a great inflection point. Let's talk about misunderstanding the imaginal, the confusion and conflation that can occur between imaginary and imaginal. What you've shared suggests the capacity of the imaginal to evolve, develop, Whitley Strieber saying we need better science fiction if we want to have better non-human entity interactions. We need to participate in the shaping of the imaginal. I guess we want our descendants to inherit an upgraded anomalous realm. So I, ha I have two different things to say. One's an example and one's on the imaginal itself. Let me start with the example. So I think the finest alien movie ever made uh, after Close Encounters was Arrival. And, but there's, I have a very specific reason for saying that. If you've seen the movie, so I think the entire UFO mythology of Hollywood is a Cold War narrative about, about um, foreigners invading American airspace and doing bad things. It's, it's all Cold War. It's all violent. It's all about invasion. And it's all, I frankly, bad. What Arrival did was it acknowledged that Cold War history. If you saw the movie, you know the military is stationed just below the, the object. But the military actually doesn't do anything. It, it stands back. And it's the female humanist linguist interpreter who figures out that why the aliens are there isn't to invade us, but to communicate with us. And she figures out this beautiful circular language that looks a lot like a Zen, you know, emptiness symbol. And she figures out that time is circular and that this is, they think and they communicate in a completely temporally different way. And so the movie is all about opening oneself up. She, you know, she takes her suit off, if you remember the movie, and she physically exposes herself emotionally and physically to this alien presence, and she communicates with them. And that's essentially what I'm trying to argue. That's what I think we're being asked to do, is to communicate and translate these presences and not to fight them as if they were 
invading forces. That's dangerous in my, my view, because then we just end up demonizing them. And, and unfortunately, again, historically, that's what human cultures have done for millennia. They have demonized these presidents. They literally turned them into demons. And if when you demonize something, guess what it becomes? A demon. So I, I think we have, we have this ability. Okay, so imaginal. So the imaginal is a very, very important word for me. Most of my colleagues and certainly most readers associate it with a French Islamicist named Henri Corbin, who was working on um, essentially Iranian Ismaili and, uh, well, not Ismaili, really uh, Shia Sufism. And for him, the imaginal was this middle realm, this, this mundus imaginalis, this middle world in which things like resurrection and vision and, and angels appear. But what people don't realize is that Corbin did not coin that term. He borrowed it from an earlier tradition of psychical researchers. And it goes back to Frederick Myers in London, of all people, who was a classicist, and Myers borrowed it from entomology. The imaginal is the imago. It's the adult form of the insect that the larval form will mature into. So for Myers, the imaginal referred to these capacities of the human being that were evolutionary buds of our wormy, caterpillarly-like selves evolving into this beautiful butterfly that would someday fly, fly off the leaf and fly into the wind. So for Myers, the imaginal, things like telepathy and precognition and clairvoyance were precisely what we were evolving toward they were the imago, they were the perfect insect. And at present, we were just like munching caterpillars on the leaves, talking to one another saying, one of us says, hey, I think, I think we have wings inside us. <laughs> and the other caterpillar says, that's the dumbest ass thing I've ever heard. Just go back to munching on the, on the, on the leaf or whatever. But, but eventually, of course, the, the caterpillars cocoon themselves and turn into mush and come out as these weird butterflies, you know? And um, so that's, that's what the imaginal originally meant. And that's certainly what I mean by it. I mean, these, these anomalous capacities that are always translating, always throwing up movies, but are moving us and evolving us to some, something else. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Jeffrey Kripal. For more on Jeff, check the show notes. Yafet Koto, IQ 196. Yes, the star of the film Alien has also had a lifetime of contact experiences, and he's not confused about it. Quote, I was having extraterrestrial experiences from the time I was 10 years old. Weird experiences. First, they took me to a psychiatrist, priest, rabbi, and no one could dispute it. Why would I be making things up at 10? I saw the damn things. I'm looking at the window at my friends, playing stickball. I'm being grounded in the house for coming home late from school. 
I get tired of watching and turn to leave and standing right at the edge of the doorway to my room was a figure of what we now call the Greys. He leaped out of the way like he didn't want me to catch him. I looked down the hall and there was nobody there. I asked my grandmother if there was anybody in the house and she said no, just you and me. But I never forgot that. And as I got to be a teenager and an adult, I realized that holy shit, that was an alien. It didn't mean anything to me back then. But looking back I thought, wait a minute brother, these guys are real. I didn't accept it fully until I was 35 or 40 years old. A lot of the time I never talk about it. A UFO as big as the Yankee Stadium turned upside down. The thing blotted out the entire sky, says Koto. I really don't care whether anyone thinks I'm delusional. My delusion is over. End quote. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions include transpersonal hypnotherapy, anomalous experiences, and creativity as a spiritual path. To book a session, go to theliminalmuse.com or check the show notes. Also, the Experiencer Group, created expressly to provide support and community for people who've had anomalous experiences of all kinds. Members can join groups specific to their interests and history, have private conversations with other members, and participate in group meetups from around the world. Use the code Aliens and Artists and get a month free. Click the link in the show notes to discover more. Also, in addition, as well, to furthermore, patron people with patronage on Patreon receive Patron. No, that's tequila. Your support is important to puppies. Precious puppy pooches with padded paws and pouches of puppy kisses for patrons. Click the link in the show notes to please a pug or pleasure a poodle. That's true. Sleep and dream I'm an Indian